Welcome to our 4th of July weekend, and thank you for being willing to sit down here on the, the floor. Um, it just is one of those things that on the holiday weekends, a lot of people go away and uh, shrinks our services a bit, but I'm glad you're here, and uh, otherwise it'd be very lonely for just me and Colin and the team, all right? But uh, we have some good things going to happen, and you know, it is 4th of July weekend. I do want to encourage you to pray for our nation. We should that uh, we would uh, humble ourselves, that we would deal with all the issues that are going on, and, and as Christians, that we would set the pace by being of good hearts and good intentions and speaking well of one another and treating people you know, with, equal, with equality and respect. And uh, that's what God would have us do. So I want to encourage you uh, that direction as we think about our nation. But we're talking about heaven. We're in a new sermon series. We started last weekend, and we're going to continue it this weekend. And this weekend, we're going to talk in particular about where do you go right after you die? And uh, what is it like? And where is that place? And you need to understand that the Bible's not uh, detailed in all of these areas. So some things we have a lot of certainty about. Other things we have to speculate. So when I speculate, I'll try to let you know ahead of time and uh, just understand that. Uh, God gives us enough information to maybe get an image or form of what it's like, and the rest we have to leave until he makes it clearer, which may happen when we actually get to heaven someday, all right? So kind of keeping that in perspective. Now, as we start this, uh, this message, I want to talk a little bit about the immortality of the soul, the immortality of the soul. And the reason I want to do that is because there are different views of immortality, and I think for those of us who are raising children, who have grandchildren, or for those of us who maybe are newer to our faith, aren't well grounded in it, we need to be careful we don't merge the two and, and confuse the two. So many cultures believe in immortality. Many cultures from the ancient past, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks. And in fact, it was a Greek who's kind of responsible for uh, really propagating the idea of the immortality of the soul. His uh, mug is up here, and uh, his name is Plato, and uh, he lived a really long time ago, about 427 to about uh, uh, the 300s. And Plato has uh, a lot of responsibility for this whole concept of the immortality of the soul. He believed that the body's material, the soul is immaterial. And uh, maybe you studied Plato, so I'm not going to get into the complexity of what he taught. I'm going to make it very simple right now, all right? So if you're a PhD in Plato, forgive me, okay? I didn't say Plato, Plato, all right? But basically he said what happens is that we are all kind of a spark of the divine, whatever that is, and some souls fall out of heaven because they lose their wings, so to speak, and therefore they become entombed in these bodies, and it's not the place where we want to be. So when we die, our souls are released. And if we have lived a good and honorable enough life, our souls get wings, so to speak, and then we are taken back to join the divine. It's kind of the beginning of what's called Gnosticism, which we meet later on in the New Testament, as some of the heretics who opposed the faith uh, had this kind of mindset. But if you didn't live a good and honorable enough life, you get reincarnated in some format and another chance at it again. So you can see how that idea, that mindset, has proliferated amongst many different religions and uh, philosophies out there. Uh, even what we consider New Age carries a lot of that kind of idea behind it. 
And so the, the culture's mindset about immortality is that the soul is eternal and the soul is indestructible. And that whole idea of the immortality of the soul is very foreign to what the Bible teaches. Because the Bible teaches us that our souls, that immaterial part of our life, has a beginning. Only God is truly immortal. In a sense, he has no beginning and he has no end. That he has always, always been. For instance, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and the, and the who stands for God. He's talking about God. Let's read it aloud together. Who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. So Paul makes it clear in other passages as well that God indeed is truly immortal. No beginning, no end, has always, always been. Now over in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 1, we hear these words. It says, The Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth, and who forms the human spirit within a person. So it is God who gives us our spirit. Remember God created Adam of dust of the, of the earth and then breathed into him what? The breath of life. Man became a living being. And our soul comes from that breath, that original breath, that conception. The soul is there. It's passed on that way. It's not like there are a rack of souls in heaven. And every time, you know, someone conceives, God grabs one off the rack and sticks it in the body. That's not how it happens, though sometimes we think that way about it. So God is the one who creates the soul and gives it to us. Psalm 139, you know, you, you wove me together in my mother's womb. You know my innermost being. It's not just our organs and our body, it's our soul. But when the Bible talks about immortality, it always refers to immortality as the soul and the body together. God did not create us. This is foreign to the cultural mindset of the soul. God did not create us to be separated from our bodies. We're meant to, to be a whole. So when God speaks of our immortality, it's a combination of a soul and body. So let me read to you from Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, for the perishable, that's this body, must clothe itself with the imperishable. That is referring to our resurrection body. We'll talk about it next weekend. And immortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with what? Immortality. Then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. So it is unnatural for us to be without the body that God has prepared and given for us. All right? God wants us to have this body. God wants us to have this experience. It's a gift that God gives to us. We're not meant to be separated. Now, with that in mind, okay, thinking about the fact that immortality is a gift that God gives to us, we'll fully realize it at the resurrection of when we have our resurrected bodies. Let's not talk about where do we go when we die, right? What is that place called? What is it like? Now, there are a lot of terms that are used where, for where your loved one has gone to, whether it's your, you know, your... Uh, spouse or your child or your parent or good friend that dies in Christ. You know, you'll hear things like they've gone to an in intermediary place. I don't like that personally, okay? 
Or if you read Randy Alcorn, he'll talk about the present heaven as opposed to the future heaven, which you know, is a recreation of the heavens and the earth. Okay? But I like how Jesus described it, and the word he used to describe it was paradise. Let me give you an example of that. <clears throat> if you want to take your Bibles out and turn with me to Luke chapter 23, beginning at verse 39. Now, you probably know the context of this story. The context of the story is that Jesus is hanging on the cross, and beside him are two criminals. One kind of yells at Jesus and mocks him, and the other has the equivalent of, an, of a conversion experience. Listen to what it says in Luke 23, beginning at verse 39. It says, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly. We are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Now watch this. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today, you'll be with me in paradise, which has a sense of you'll be conscious with me. I'll know you. You'll know me. We'll be in paradise together. Now, that same word for paradise, Paul borrows in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 in a very unique experience. Let me read that to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. He says, I must go on boasting. Now, you've got to read the context. When Paul talks about boasting here, he's dealing with the Corinthians who are bragging about who they follow. You know, and they're very boastful. So he says, okay, then let me boast. He's being a little bit sarcastic. He says, I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man, now he's talking about himself. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, Paul, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. And then Jesus uses the term over in the book of Revelation, if you want to turn there or you can write it down, look it up later on. Revelation chapter 2, verse 7 when he says, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. Now, kind of remember that, all right? I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So the word paradise, same word used three different times. And that word paradise comes from a, per, a, a Persian word, it's derived from a Persian word, which means garden. It means a high-walled garden. And the idea is of the gardens of Cyrus. It's not a wild, out-of-control kind of garden. It is a well-manicured garden. And so some scholars, when they read this and study this, uh, have this concept that perhaps paradise is like the Garden of Eden which I find fascinating because in that passage in Revelation chapter 2 where Jesus refers to the tree of life, where was the tree of life when we first encounter it? Way back in Genesis, right? Remember the two trees, the tree of knowledge, good and evil, Adam took and Eve took of that and ate it and here we are today. 
And then God says, I'm going to banish them from, I'm going to banish them from the garden lest they take from the tree of life and live forever in a corrupted state. So it's really an act of mercy that God banishes them from the garden or we'd all be lost. Well, what happened to the Garden of Eden? Some people say, well, it was, you know, swept away in the flood. Was it? We don't know. Could God have moved it to a different dimension? Is the Garden of Eden paradise? We don't know that for sure. But what I know is that my loved ones who have passed away in Christ, I know right now they're in a garden. I know that when you die and when I die, if we die before Christ returns, we go to a garden. Is it the Garden of Eden? I don't know. It's like, it's paradise. It's so beautiful. It is so peaceful, it is so wonderful that the best word we can come up with is paradise. And the nearest, and even though we can't see it, but in our imagination, the nearest image we can think of is the Garden of Eden itself. So that seems to be the place where our loved ones go, seems to be the place where, where we go at that point when we leave this body. Now, here's the next question. What kind of existence do we have in paradise. What kind of existence do we have in paradise? Are we just like, you know, Casper the ghost kind of floating around someplace? I mean, that, you know, you try to use your imagination. What does it look like? What does it feel like? What is it all about? Well, let me ask you some questions, okay? And again, this is one of those points where we're kind of stepping out a little bit and, and we're just saying we're not sure, but, you know, here's some possibilities. When Jesus, uh, you can talk back to me, but just a little bit, when Jesus rose from the dead, what did he have? Body, right? He had a body, right? Resurrected body. Different than the body that he died in, but the same body, but it's, but it's been recreated, so to speak. It's a resurrected body, okay? When Jesus ascended to the Father, what was he in? His body, right? So he sends to heaven in his body, okay? He says that the today would be with me in paradise. My understanding is that Christ now exists in his resurrected body, in his resurrected form. He will return to earth in his what? In his resurrected form, okay? In the Old Testament, there was a guy named Enoch, Genesis chapter, Genesis chapter 5, verse 24. It only tells us that Enoch walked with God and was no more because God took him. Presumably, God took him in his bodily form. What I do know is that I'm told that Elijah, 2 Kings chapter 2, was evacuated from this earth in a fiery chariot in bodily form. What I know is that Paul had an incident where he ends up in heaven and he's not sure whether he was in body or not, but he was in paradise. Stephen looks into heaven, we'll talk about it toward the end of the message, and sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now some of that may be seen as symbolic, but there's enough there to let us know that there's, there's bodily forms in what we think of as heaven. When Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah are there with him. Moses and Elijah are in bodily form. Look what Paul tells us over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Interesting passage of Scripture. Scholars come at it very differently. It's one of the most intriguing passages in 2 Corinthians. Listen to what he says here. Beginning at verse uh, 1. That was 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, he says, for we know that if the earthly tent we live in, that's this body, is destroyed, and all of our bodies are going to, you know, we're going to die biologically, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. 
Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. So what Paul's saying, it's unnatural not to have a body. God did not create us to be immortal souls without a body. For while we are in this tent, we groan. I do that when I get up in the mornings these days, right? We groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. So he says, really looking forward to heaven, really looking forward to a, a body. It's, I, I don't want to be unbodied, so to speak. He says, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So we have the Spirit of God living in us. Therefore, we're always confident and know that as long as we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and we prefer to be away from the body and home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we're at home in this body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So when you approach this question of how do we exist in paradise, there are some options that scholars have put out there. One possibility is that we are in just a spiritual immaterial, immaterial form. The other possibility, as you read the, the text, is you, you can come at it and say, no, in heaven we are in a temporary bodily form of some sort. And a third option is say, no, it's, it's our soul, it's our spirit, but it has, it has bodily characteristics to it. I mean, it says in Revelation chapter 6 that the martyrs cry out to God. They pray for justice, and God speaks to them, and it says, and he gives them a white robe to wear until the time is set, and all that's been completed is done. So when I, and this is just my opinion, when I look at the passage, I don't think we're free-floating spirits in the garden. I, I believe we have some temporary form that God gives to us where we await for our resurrected bodies. I don't think it's our resurrected bodies because the Bible's pretty clear we receive that when Christ returns and we come with him. But what I know is that in heaven there's no such thing as sleeping souls. Some people talk about soul sleep. You die and, you have, and then you know, you're asleep until Christ returns. There's just too much indication in Scripture that there's consciousness in heaven. There's communication in heaven. There's prayers. There's knowing Christ and Christ knowing us. There's knowing my neighbor and who's there with me. So I believe that we are there in, in some form, in some, in some temporary form that God gives us or, or our spirits take on some kind of bodily characteristics to where we can commune. Now, you may come in a different way and that's okay. We'll all find out eventually. But I'm excited about it. I'm excited about paradise. I'm excited that I'm conscious there. I'm excited that I'm aware of Christ, that Christ is aware of me. And I'm aware of others who've gone there with me. And that's what we have to look forward to when we think about the second coming. By the way, you know, the last message of the series is going to be kind of a Q&A time uh, where you'll have a chance uh, later on to write in or email in your questions and We'll kind of group them together by common themes to try to answer them. And if I were there and I was going to ask some questions, you know, one of them might be, well, what about purgatory? Because, you know, a lot of people believe in purgatory. I'd, I'd probably write that one in. Um, or, you know, this, this thing I read about judgment. Are, are Christians going to be judged? Really? When? Where? Why? What's that all about? I mean, that's just something I would write in. You may not want to, but I'd write it in. <laughs> try to get some clarity on that one. Now... Here's the one I'm most excited about, okay? But it's also the weirdest one. So you ready for this? Okay? 
Uh, where is paradise? Where is it? Okay, can we know where the garden is? Can we know where our loved ones are? Now, I want to answer that question the best I can, and I understand that I can't be exact. I understand there's some theoretical stuff going on here, but I want to do it for, for a couple of reasons, and here's the biggest reason why. There are a lot of, so when you think about the world today, the culture today, there really are two groups. There's one group that's very spiritualistic. The media really promotes that. You see a lot of that. There's a lot of spiritualism in the world. We're a very spiritualistic world. Don't confuse that with the spirituality of scriptures, okay? But there's also a, it has been and is a growing movement, and we talked about last weekend, toward naturalism. You know, the idea that we're biological creatures, any idea that we have of the spirit is just chemicals in the brain, okay? There is no heaven, there is no future. We are born, we live biologically, we die. And all we can know is that which we can prove in a laboratory. All we can know is that which we feel and touch and evidence. And one of the things that gives people like Hitchens and Dawkins and others, you know, who are philosophers, who are scientists, who are biologists, who are really promoting the whole concept of naturalism, which your students and your grandstudents are going to be inundated with when they go to secular schools. And it's all around, constantly. And that's why you got to make sure, you, you know, they need to be in church. They need to be in Sunday school. They need to be in youth group. You need to be talking about God at home. You need to make them aware of these things. What happens is Dawkins, Hitchens, and others like that write these books, spread their ideology in popular forms, and they mock Christianity, and they mock the scriptures. And one of the reasons why they mock it is because in their minds, the concept of life after death in heaven is ludicrous. It's fantasy. Sigmund Freud, the great psychiatrist, said that heaven is nothing more than wish fulfillment. That is, we so want to transcend death that we, we make it in our minds a reality. What I quoted from another philosopher back in our last series is kind of a noble lie we make up for ourselves. And so to try to argue with people like that from the Bible, which they discount, from our experience, which they discount, doesn't do any good. But when you can take science and begin to use science, what they believe in and say, but science points to the reality, now we're talking. That's why I want to camp on this just for a few moments, because there's a growing trend, amongst, especially amongst physicists, to say that there appears to be, at least in theory, a lot of hope and a lot of insight into what Christians have been calling heaven or the afterlife. But it's not like all recent. Albert Einstein recognized something about the universe, that there was more to it than we see. Let me quote to you from him. He says, we are in the position of a little child entering a huge library with books in many languages. The child knows someone must have written those books, does not know how, does not understand the languages in which they are written. The child dimly suspects a mysterious order in the arrangement of the books, but doesn't quite know what it is. That, it seems to me, is the attitude of even the most intelligent human being toward God. We see the universe marvelously arranged and obeying certain laws, but only dimly understand these laws. So even the great Einstein was aware, ah, there's something else besides this, this order, there's design, there's something going on. You know, you know, and then he pursued relativity and the theory of everything. And, 
know, one of, his, one of the, the people who has studied him and really taken seriously what he's done is a brilliant physicist, theoretical physicist, not a Christian that I know of, uh, and uh, his name is Michio Keiku. He's one of the most brilliant men alive today. He's the co-founder of string theory. How many of you have ever heard of string theory? You know what's fascinating? Every service that asks that question, I'm amazed by how many hands go up. String theory is becoming very popular. Remember, it is a theory, all right? But it's becoming very popular because more and more scientists recognize that, you know, string theory is probably a reality that if we had the capacity, we could discover and we could know. Well, string theory is evidenced, I think, to some degree in Scripture. You say, what do you mean by string theory? Well, string theory is this idea that there's more than just the normal dimensions, the four, if you include time, that we think of. If I had a string and I put a bead on the string, you know, it's like one dimension, I could tell you exactly where the bead is. I could say it's, here it's, it's four inches down, 4.3 inches down, you could locate it, right? Have you ever played Battleship? Remember that game? Okay, E5, right? So longitude, latitude, I can find the ship. Two-dimensional, right? A third dimension is the depth, okay? And then, of course, time. Well, string theory says there may be as many as 26 dimensions. Therefore, there could be multi-dimensions and multi-universes that exist. One way of thinking about it is the sheet of paper. If I were to put a dot here and a dot there, that's a straight line, right? But what if I fold it over? Wouldn't it be cool? How do I get to that dot now? Wouldn't it be cool if I could go from this dot through the paper to that dot? That'd be kind of cool, don't you think? I think that would be pretty cool, all right? Want to watch me do it? If I find a wormhole, I can do it, all right? Now, this is stuff that 40 years ago was science fiction. This is Star Trek, all right? Today, though it's still theoretical, brilliant men like Keiku and others say, you know what? We believe, we believe if we had the capacity, if we could figure out you know, the black matter and everything that goes with it, we could do that. We could pass through it. That there are dimensions all around us like that. Say, Pastor, what did you eat last night? <laughs> Those cough drops you suck on must be really strong. This sounds kind of bizarre. Okay, I can't prove it. But you know what? I get excited about it because to me, the scriptures already allude to it. And God is the greatest mathematician who's ever lived ever will live. He's the greatest scientist. There's order and design to everything he does. Why can't God allow us over time to discover some of his secrets and his mysteries? So, well, where do you see something like multi-dimensions mentioned in the scripture? Well, we see hints at possibilities. For instance, over in uh, the Old Testament, you know, we have the story of Elisha and his servant found over in 2 Kings chapter 6. And they're surrounded by the armies of Aram. And the servant comes in and says to Elisha, that you're not going to like this, but we're surrounded by the enemies. And Elisha says, you got it all wrong, my friend. There are more with us than there are against us. And he prays and he says, Lord, open his eyes. And the servant opens his eyes and he sees this army of fiery angels all the way around. Now my question is, was his eyes open to a, the spiritual dimension? The Bible tells us we fight not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers that are work around us. Daniel certainly talks about that. Is that another dimension? How about in the book of Acts, chapter 7, 
when Stephen is having this debate with the religious leaders. It's a heated debate. And all of a sudden, in verse 56, he says, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man, bodily, standing at the right hand of God. What does Stephen mean by that? I saw heaven open. Was he allowed to see into that dimension which he was about to enter into? What about Paul in 2 Corinthians when I read about him? I don't know if I was a body or out of a body, but I went into a third heaven to paradise. Was he allowed to slip into that dimension and back out? But one of my favorite illustrations is Jesus himself in Luke chapter 24. Jesus has risen from the dead. The disciples are freaking out. They don't know what to do. They're in Jerusalem. The context of the other gospels tell us that they are in a room, and it tells us on purpose that the doors are locked. And all of a sudden, Jesus is standing in their midst. It says in verse 36, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. Why would they think they saw a ghost? Because they're in a room, a small room, the doors are locked. There's no evidence the door was unlocked. How did he get in here? Only ghosts can do that. Since they were startled and frightened, thinking he, they saw a ghost, he said to them, verse 38, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Then he says, do you have something to eat? They get some broiled fish. He eats the fish to prove to them that he's not a ghost. He is in his resurrected body. So evidently, in Jesus' resurrected body, he can move from one dimension to the next and to the next, and to the next, and to the next. So it is possible, I say it is possible, that paradise, that place we go to, our loved ones, are not like way out there beyond some galaxy, you know, heaven beyond the universe. It is possible they're right here. We just can't see. We can't be there dimensionally speaking. Maybe that helps us understand what the writer to the Hebrews says about so great a cloud of witnesses that surround us, dimensionally speaking. Again, I don't know those things exactly, but there's enough of science and certainly there's enough of scripture that seem to be coming together that one may be illuminating the other and giving us insight. And it's exciting to me. Folks, this is not fantasy. This isn't, this isn't wish fulfillment. This is reality. It's a reality and a promise that God gives to his people, to you and to me. But as we talk about heaven, I want us to make sure we don't lose perspective. Because that can happen. It can become all about heaven. It can become all about miracles and supernatural. I want us to keep our perspective because ultimately it's all about God. It's all about God. God's greatness. And God's glory. And God's love. You can never define the greatness of God, but you can try. You can think about it. What is it that makes God great? You know, oftentimes when we think about the greatness of God, we think on the macro level, right? Big creation. But you know, God's greatness to me is oftentimes conceived on the micro level. And what I mean by that is, you know, God, God's greatness is defined by his willingness to become so small. When you think about Philippians chapter 2, you might want to read it sometime. It says that God, you know, Jesus didn't, you know, just didn't hang on to his 
his glorious position in the Trinity. His eternal, immaterial existence in eternity. But he took on human flesh and he came to this earth. He was born of a virgin. Paul says in Galatians 4, at the right time, for the right reason to save us. Do you realize that, and I, you know, this is a mystery to me, it's, but it speaks so much of his greatness and his love. Do you realize that when Jesus agreed, so to speak, to take on human flesh, that it was an eternal decision? They exchanged his body that died for a resurrection body that his father gave him, but he's now encapsulated, so to speak, in that resurrection body. It really cost him for you and me. It'd be like you saying, I love crickets so much, I am going to become a cricket for eternity. I don't like crickets, do you? Personally, they're gross, they're loud. If you're a cricket lover, I apologize, but I don't like crickets. I step on crickets, right? And later in the summer, you know, they come out from everywhere. They're just, they're obnoxious creatures, right? I mean, God could look at us the same way. Obnoxious, loud, kind of ugly. But God says, I love those crickets so much I'll put on a cricket suit. I'll put on a cricket body. And that's how I'll be for eternity. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? And that's how much he loves you and he loves me. But you know what else makes, makes God so great? Is that God did not create heaven because God needs space to exist. Because God fills up space and space cannot contain him. God does not need heaven, you understand? He lives outside of space and time. He doesn't need a universe. Nothing could ever contain him. So why does God create heaven? Listen, I was thinking about this. God did not create heaven so we would have a place to be with him. God created heaven to be a place where he could be with us. Now that is love. And that is profound. And that's God. And that's why heaven exists, because he really wants to be with you. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes for a moment. And I just want to speak to you on a, on a personal level here for a moment. I want to, I want to challenge your hearts. And I want you to use your imagination. You know, the last, uh, the last few, few days, the last several days, there have been some absolutely gorgeous sunsets, pink, and red, and the rays cutting through the clouds. It's just been, ah, it's just been beautiful. But I'm going to guess that some of us have missed the sunsets. Now, if you miss the sunset, does that mean the sun never set? Of course not. The sun did set, but you were distracted. And I think the same thing is so oftentimes true with God and eternity. We get so distracted with our suffering with our troubles, with our issues, that we miss the sunset. We lose sight of our great God. We lose sight of eternity. We lose sight of how creation gives us a thousand hints of what is yet to come. 
And perhaps what we need to learn to do is to still our souls. And become aware of God. And aware of eternity. One of my favorite things to do at night, after a house is quiet, Marcia's gone to sleep. I go out, we have these big windows, and I just lay on the floor, and I just look up into the sky. And I force myself to be still. And those are some of the best moments when I become aware of God, and I become aware of heaven, and I become aware of eternity. And it puts everything in perspective for me. And suddenly this life and our problems and my troubles become so small. Anticipation wells up. I want you to listen to this beautiful hymn. Be still my soul.